Hello, everyone. Welcome to Teaching Matters. This program is produced and recorded in the studios of WOUB Public Media in Athens, Ohio. I'm your host, Scott Titsworth, Dean of the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. One of the challenges that we face in education today is to think about the most important resource, which are the teachers that are guiding our students. In today's podcast, we'll be talking about that issue as it relates to how the U.S. compares to other countries. My guests for this episode are Linda Darling-Hammond and Mark Tucker. Linda Darling-Hammond is currently the president and CEO of the Learning Policy Institute and the Charles E. Dockuman Professor Emeritus of Education Studies at Stanford University. Linda is a world-renowned scholar in the area of teacher education and in 2016 was named the most influential scholar in education policy and practice in the United States. Mark Tucker is the president and CEO of the National Center on Education and the Economy. Mark is a leading expert on issues related to standards and assessment. He also writes a very engaging blog called Top Performers, which addresses a variety of issues related to educational policy and practices. Those blogs are published on Education Week and at the National Center for Education and the Economy website. Both of my guests collaborated on an international comparative study on teacher quality published as a series of policy briefs by the National Center on Education and the Economy, a Washington, D.C.-based uh, nonprofit. A link to these briefs is included with the text accompanying this podcast. Linda and Mark, uh, welcome to Teaching Matters. Thank you for being on. Thanks for having us. Good so, to be here. Very good. So so to set the stage, um, I found the reports that uh, you all have published to be very insightful in terms of trying to understand um, various ways in which teacher quality can be improved across the world. Before we get into some of the details of the findings in those reports, can we start by just setting the stage about what your study was all about? So, Mark, for example, one of your areas of expertise is comparative studies. For the listeners, can you kind of explain what that means in this environment of looking at different education systems and maybe what some of the things are that you're trying to understand and how that might have scientific or practical impact once you do those studies? Sure. Uh, Our organization has been studying the countries with the best-performing education systems for almost 30 years now, and there's a very simple reason that we are doing that. If you look at the most widely used comparison of student performance across the world, it's the OECD Program on International Student Assessment. And it shows that close to 30 countries now are outperforming the United States both on achievement and equity. The number of countries that have been outperforming us has been growing and growing over the years, and the amount by which they are outperforming us has been steadily growing, too. So the distance between the United States' performance and the performance of the top performers has been growing bigger and bigger. So the obvious question, at least obvious for us, is how do they do it? When most American researchers try and do research to improve American education, what they look at is American education. It makes a lot more sense to us to look at the countries that are greatly outperforming us and ask what strategies do they use. We concentrate most of our attention on the countries in the top 10 of the world's league tables. And these are countries on different continents and different parts of the world, different cultures, different systems. What is so striking about this is that the underlying principles that they use to construct their education systems are very similar to each other 
much more similar than any of them are to the United States. That's why you do comparative research. It is by looking at those differences that you get the big clues to what we should be doing to get results that look a lot more like their results. And th- thank you for a very um, clear explanation of that. Uh, Linda, turning, turning to you now, you know, your, the building blocks of your reputation has really been on your work exploring how we can best prepare teachers, and that's really the focal point of the comparative study that Mark just uh, talked about in, in a more general sense. Linda, can you talk about um, sort of the range of topics that were included in the policy briefs um, that, you know, interested readers might be able to look at? Yes, we really looked at um, recruitment, preparation, induction of beginning teachers, the whole entry process, looked at compensation and working conditions. We looked at uh, professional learning throughout the career and career ladders. Uh, ways by which teachers could advance in their careers and share their expertise. All of that in the context of the curriculum assessment and funding systems in these countries. Mm-hmm. And and then for both of you to jump in as you like, um, can you briefly describe uh, some of the research methodologies that you employed? Um, you know, some of the details about how you actually conducted this very broad scale uh, and informative comparative study. First of all, selected countries that were not only high performers in a variety of ways in international comparisons on the PISA um, assessments, on things like graduation rates and other indicators of educational attainment and accomplishment, uh, but also countries that had been really working to develop a systematic approach to producing strong teaching quality. Uh, And we evaluated a lot of information and data about the countries before we selected them. Uh, Once we did so, we created teams of researchers who were typically uh, from both the United States and a person inside the country. So we had both an inside and an outside view on each country. Uh, People who had strong track records in studying teaching, teacher preparation, and teaching policy systems. Uh, And we developed a set of common uh, protocols and approaches to interviewing people both in the policy world and government and um, the ministry, et cetera, but also in schools and teacher education and leader education programs, uh, professional development programs, and um, the parts of the system that shape what teachers learn and can do. Uh, We sent uh, folks to both observe uh, the schools and uh, preparation practices uh, and to conduct those interviews. Uh, We had a set of common questions and metrics that we were trying to uncover the answers to, uh, and we uh, both developed individual case studies and then worked across the team to look at the comparisons between and among the countries. We looked at five countries, um, and in big countries, we we zeroed in on certain jurisdictions within them. So um, Finland and Singapore, both about the size of a typical American state, Uh, Canada, Australia, uh, and Shanghai, China. Um, And we, within Canada, looked at Alberta and Ontario. Uh, Within Australia, we zeroed in on New South Wales and Victoria. 
Very good. Um, let's start digging into some of the details then. But before I do that, I just want to compliment the, the research team because reading the reports as somebody that has a, a scholarly background, it was evident to me that there was rich depth in the data that led into those policy briefs. Uh, the detail um, was striking in, in terms of how it was explained in an efficient way, but yet at the same time, it was also very consumable. And so it would be very easy for, uh, you know, for example, me to be able to assign that in a class and students be able to immediately understand the details in a complex way. So just a congratulations on a really great uh, work product that you, you created. Getting into one of the issues, and we'll go through several, but one of the first ones that that stuck out to me uh, in thinking about this comparative study of the other countries in relation to the U.S., you know, I think the U.S. system in many ways is still structured in a way that we would have seen previous generations of people experiencing. The The education system is relatively flat. Um, there's really not many pathways for people that enter the profession, uh, certainly more than in previous years, but, but still it's a relatively flat system without a lot of vertical um, opportunities. That wasn't apparent in many of the countries that you studied. And so in one of the policy brief papers, you talked about the concept of career ladders, uh, and you mentioned it previously. Can you talk about what that uh, career ladder idea was and the way that you observed it in some of the other countries that you studied and why you think that's important? Let me just make an overall comment about a, 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 an underlying difference in strategy between the United States and the countries that Linda's team studied. If you go back in American history a hundred years, you will, uh, that is in the early 20th century, the United States faced a problem. We had, we had an awful lot of people coming from Eastern Europe low levels of literacy uh, into the United States. We had a, a whole lot of people coming from the south of the United States to the north with low levels of literacy. And we, at the same time, were making um, uh, basically uh, a lower secondary education compulsory. We needed thousands and thousands and thousands of teachers, and there were very few people with a college education. So we created a system explicitly uh, to rely on teachers, women explicitly, who uh, were not expected to be teachers very long. In fact, they were expected to leave teaching when they got pregnant. So we built this, this great big bureaucracy on top of them, and we regarded teachers as essentially interchangeable. One was as good as another. They had very little more education than the kids they were educating at the high school level. The systems that we've been studying aren't built that way at all. They're built on the idea of a professional teacher in a real profession, which is basically in charge of the way its services are delivered, just like doctors, lawyers, architects, and engineers. We treat teachers a whole lot more like blue-collar workers. One of the signs of this is what you just talked about, Scott. Mm -hmm. In the United States, the job that a teacher has on the last day of teaching is the same as the job she had on her very first day of teaching. If you go to Singapore or you go to Shanghai, it's not like that at all. It is much more like what you see, let's say, in a, in a good big American law firm where you start out as an associate. Uh, if you work really hard and you're damn good, you get to be a partner. If you're exceptionally good, you get to be a senior partner. And if you're better than that, you get to be a managing partner. There is a career in the law. The same thing is true in all the other high-status professions. It is true in Singapore. It is true in Shanghai. It is not true in the United States. 
So what you see in those countries is that you don't have to leave teaching in order to get more pay, more status. When we describe the kinds of career ladders that we see in places like Shanghai and Singapore to American principals and school superintendents, they say to us, oh my God, if that had been available to me, I'd still be a teacher. It's an enormous difference, the whole idea of having a real career in teaching. And this wasn't explicitly part of your study, but have you seen any movement in the U.S. system as a whole of, of better practices where this idea of a lack of vertical mobility um, is, is being confronted and, and overcome? We have uh, had a number of periods of history where districts or states have started to construct career ladders, um, but usually the full development and sustenance of those has um, come and gone with budget cuts. Mm -hmm. On the, at the same time, we have seen some movement on creating mentoring roles for teachers to mentor and coach uh, each other and, and younger teachers. Um, we have had the development of the National Board for Professional Teaching Standards, which in fact Mark had a hand in at the very beginning, which provides a way to uh, recognize the accomplishment of veteran teachers. And some districts and states have folded that into compensation expectations and sometimes choose um, mentor teachers from the pool of board certified teachers. I would say the efforts have been partial in the United States, but interest continues to return uh -huh. because you really need to build uh, a system of advancement for teachers, not only to keep people interested in staying in the profession, but also to ensure that the expertise is available to coach and mentor the next generation of teachers, which uh, happens in Singapore and Shanghai uh, and other countries which have this kind of a ladder where you can be guaranteed that well-trained uh, senior mentor teachers will be available to support um, newcomers coming into the profession. I think that some of the earlier career ladder systems didn't work very well is because where they do work well the work of the school is done very differently than it is typically in the United States. If you look at the OECD data, teachers in the United States are expected to be in front of students teaching more than the teachers in any other country surveyed by the OECD. If you look at the top performers, it's almost the opposite. They are in front of students less than almost any of the other countries. And so they have as much as 60% of their time available to do things other than stand in front of the class and teach. And what they're doing is really important. They work together in, um, in a grade level teams, subject matter teams, research topic teams. Um, they are they're working in a very systematic way to create better lessons do better formative evaluation, create better ways to do summative evaluation, um, create lessons that are really exciting and engaging for kids. Um, it, it, they'll work on a lesson for as long as a year and a half together until it is absolutely exquisite. But they also take time to, to, to tutor individual kids. If a kid is having a problem, They'll, they will gather all the teachers of that kid and see if they can figure out what the problem is and put together a strategy for solving it that is systematic and they follow up on it. They actually do research to figure out whether the things they are doing to improve the school are working 
and they gather data to make sure they change course if they're not. When you put all these things together, it creates a, a school in which teachers are constantly organized in teams for different purposes. And so the steps on the career ladder are matched to different roles that teachers have in the school, leading teams, mm-hmm. um, doing, uh, doing the things that need to be done to build a highly effective school. It's a different way to organize the work of teachers. And um, so it won't do to just have um, a career ladder but not change the work the way the work is done. There just is no point in that. And that often is what has happened in American schools. It's a lot harder, actually, to change the way the work is done than it is to create the outlines of a career ladder. Yeah, I mean, you know, my impression is that a lot of the collaboration that you might typically see are over sort of routine um, process issues rather than the deep substance of how to you know, establish a high high caliber learning environment. What you're describing is a high caliber learning environment um, that is built upon collaboration um, that 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 we need to have. And you could see how that would fit into the career ladder. As we move beyond the the career ladder issue, um, obviously a question is pay. And one of the things that I noticed in in one of the policy briefs is a stark contrast in the pay uh, between the countries that you studied in the United States. Could you characterize that differential um, for the audience and talk about what you? think the implications are? Sure. Um, You know, we've just um, seen the updated data from OECD just this year. Um, Most of the countries, well, all of the countries you studied and most of the high-achieving countries are paying teachers about equivalently to other college-educated workers. In the United States, the differential between uh, teachers and other college workers is about 30%. T- U.S. teachers are paid about 30% less. Even after you take into account difference in the work year, it's more than 20% less. Uh, and if you actually compare teachers to similarly educated workers, because many teachers have a master's degree, the differential is 40% less. So um, we've been dropping in terms of competitiveness with other fields since the early 1990s when wages were a little closer to one another. And by the way, in the early 1990s in the U.S., teacher attrition was at its lowest point. It was only about 5%. It's now about 8%. And this creates some of that churn that Mark was talking about earlier. Uh, It's not only a function of compensation. It's also a function of working conditions, uh, training, induction, and other things that matter for whether teachers stay in the profession. Uh, But it does have a negative effect on the teaching force as a whole uh, and in places with high levels of churn and very low salaries relative to other professions, we do see um, uh, negative effects on student achievement as well. And then beyond the salary issue, there was also the issue that I noticed of continuing education for teachers. Um, Is the structure of that continuing education markedly different from what we observe in the United States? So, you know, supporting teachers as they move through their career arc? Well, there's several differences. One is that in many of these countries, um, professional development and preparation are free to teachers. Um, In Finland and Singapore, when you become a teacher, you enter one of a small number of very high-quality teacher education programs, which you attend for free, earning a stipend or a salary while you're there. 
And then you have ongoing professional learning opportunities, uh, also typically uh, freely available to teachers. In Singapore, they may be offered by the Singapore Academy of Teachers, but they're also integrated and embedded in the daily work of teachers uh, in that time that Mark was describing earlier. Um, and uh, the, the opportunities to learn are regularly available uh, each day, each week, uh, and well underwritten. They're also quite often teachers teaching teachers. There are often um, many professional learning opportunities which are teacher-led. They can include everything from this lesson development, lesson study, uh, action research on topics, uh, two uh, trainings that look like workshops and conferences that we might see, but that are more plentiful and more readily available throughout teachers' careers. For American teachers, continuing education is more or less synonymous with being workshopped, a phrase I use quite deliberately because, generally speaking, it means attending a workshop. For most professionals, real professionals, high-status professionals in the United States, that's not how they learn. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, doctors and lawyers and engineers of all kinds are expected to keep up with what's going on in their field all the time. It's part of the work. It's built into it. So when you look at um, how uh, a team might work in, uh, in a system that is using uh, the teaming structures I was describing a, a, a few minutes ago, it's often the case that when the team is assembled, a few of the teachers in the team are assigned to do a very careful review worldwide of the best research that has been done on whatever challenge that team is facing. It begins with research, and they then have to put together a research plan uh, to evaluate the success of what they're doing as they go, as I said earlier, so that they can switch course if it's not working. In some of these countries, um, the teachers are actually expected to write research papers about the action research that they do. These papers are typically published in refereed journals that are run by universities. And um, in Shanghai, um, the people at the very top of the uh, of the ladder are um, are, co- are called professor master teachers because it turns out they have as many published research papers as many of the members of the faculty in the School of Education. Mm-hmm. The point that I'm making is that it's a very different conception of teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, as Linda has often said, it's not unusual in, in Finland to find teachers who have PhDs, um, and, and they regularly publish. The expectation is that teachers are actually not the recipients of research alone. They are also creators of it. They are driving improvements in their profession. They're not being told what to do by others. And this is a, this is a very different conception of what it, what it means to be a teacher. When people like us uh, who are in the professions are doing our work, we're constantly we're constantly reading about other other people's work, the research that is done that is relevant to our work, talking to people who are at the leading edge of their fields. That's built into our work. That's what you see in the top-performing countries. None of what I just described mm-hmm. is being workshopped. 
Yeah, and you know, as I think about it, um, you know, I've understood uh, the principles of action research for you know a couple decades now, and it strikes me that our 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 bevy of journals and publication outlets have not adapted to that research methodology very well at all. I mean, if I if I was a teacher that wanted to engage in action research with you know my work and my students and my colleagues, the outlets for me to actually be able to publish that are few and far between. As I as I understand mm-hmm. it right now, which right. of That's course, right. um, w- one other question about this issue of of professional development that really struck me as interesting because we're dealing with this in in my college and at my university, actually in in, in a similar way. Um, we're trying to understand how do you best support faculty across a career arc. And, you know, the old mentality was that once the faculty member reaches tenure, there's not really a plan for them after that. They, they, they work until retirement or moving into the dark side of administration, right? And so we've been talking about that a lot on my campus because uh, you, you, of course, want to be able to continue to support um, your high-performing faculty as they change in their interests across their career span. So when I was reading one of the policy briefs um, about Finland, it mentioned a program called ASAVA, I think is maybe how I would pronounce it, but though I'm probably very off on that. But it appeared to scaffold professional development across a teacher's career span. Is there anything that you can expand on in terms of describing that? Or just from your both of your perspectives, if we were to create an ideal environment for professional development of teachers, how might that look different for a teacher that has gotten past the critical three-year mark, um, has gotten to the midpoint of their career, and, and then certainly the teachers at the end of their career? How do we continue supporting them and, and developing them? Well, you know, I think that the concerns of teachers can evolve. Uh, Obviously, when you start teaching, you're thinking a lot about how do I make it all come together? You know, how do I uh, figure out when, you know, kids are struggling? You know, what the diagnostics would be to help them. In high-performing countries with good teacher education systems, teachers don't start out struggling with classroom management the way they often do in the United States if they've had too little clinical experience because they typically have had quite a bit of clinical experience, but they are getting very, very supportive um, mentoring and hands-on coaching and um, support from the very beginning. Um, As you go through the teaching career, your um, perspective evolves, the routines get well-established, and then you're thinking about you know, how do I really uh, sharpen the way that I approach a particular uh, topic? How do I um, really uh, get deeper learning from my students? How do I enable um, students who may need additional help to thrive in stronger ways? So the um, sophistication of the work deepens. Uh, and as you progress even further, you've got a lot of skills you want to share with other teachers. So there is an evolution in teacher learning across the profession. However, I think uh, that doesn't mean we would divide teachers into beginners go over here to this class and, you know, uh, people in mid-career are separated and and those at the top of their career uh, in the way that we think of, unfortunately, tracking for students in too many schools. Mm-hmm. Um, because what we saw in these countries was collegial learning in which the senior teachers are working with the mid-career teachers and the beginning teachers, uh, often in these action research groups, 
uh, often in these lesson study groups. And so while the concerns of teachers uh, might be um, different as they're engaging in those, much of the learning that they're taking from the experiences happens in that collegial context. Um, And so I think uh, finding the time in the United States for teachers to have those collegial learning experiences in which different roles can be taken, and those may be associated with um, progression on a career ladder, for example, is one of the things that would allow teachers to get from each other what they need for their learning, as well as from other learning experiences that might be available to them. Uh, I will also add that in places like Singapore and Shanghai, uh, increasingly Australia, there is um, particular professional development for mentor teachers and coach teachers and senior teachers so that they will be able to acquire the tools to help their colleagues. Uh, So that is also a part of the career trajectory that you are uh, referring to. Mm -hmm. Let me expand just a little on this, Scott, uh, uh, focusing in on a comment um, Linda just made it uh, about Singapore and Shanghai and their career ladders. Uh, There is research in the United States that shows that American teachers get uh, steadily better at their work for the first three years uh, that they are teaching, and then it levels off. And um, I think the explanation for that is is pretty simple. They get very little help, uh, usually, when they're just starting out and teaching, and so they're fighting for their survival. But then once they get to that point, um, the point where they're reasonably confident they can get through the day, there actually is no incentive for getting any better. What you see in these top-performing countries is that the career ladder is used as a system to provide incentives for teachers to get better and better and better and better at the work through their whole career. The way you move up the ladder is to be better at the work. If, if, if I, I said earlier that these systems, career ladder systems, only work if they're tied to a different form of work organization. Here's an example of what I meant. If you look at Singapore, in the early stages of the ladder, that is lower rungs, what's really being measured is how good a teacher you are by many, many different measures. But as you move up the ladder, other things come into play. You're working on teams. So one of the questions is, how good a team member are you? As you move up the ladder, you begin to get assignments the lead teams that are relatively, relatively easy to lead. So the next question is, how good are you at leading a team of other teachers? Then the next question is, um, as you're moving up, how good are you at mentoring other teachers, at sharing your expertise with either teachers who are brand new or teachers who may not be new but need help? And then finally, as you're moving to the upper reaches of the ladder, the top, The question is, how good are you at action research? This is now assuming, of course, that you're very good at all the other things that I was just talking about. Mm -hmm. So you you have an incentive, not just to constantly get better in a unidimensional way, but to learn new kinds of things that will qualify you to take the next step up, working your way toward master teacher and for a very small number, professor master teacher. The whole system is built on continuous learning that is rewarded by the very structure of the system. 
So the, the two of you, uh, because of your professional backgrounds and, and the current work that we're talking about, obviously have a vested interest in being able to have your work shape policy um, at the local level, the state level, at the national level. Um, and, and, you know, you're a, a collection of a few individuals that probably have the breadth of perspective and the knowledge base to be able to make uh, really specific policy recommendations. So as you think about the problem but also the assets that we have in the United States that we can build upon um, and improve. It's a big, it's, I describe it as a big apple. And so what, what would be some initial bites out of that apple that you would recommend uh, be taken uh, to try to elevate and enhance the United States approach to education in ways that would become more uh, similar to the countries that you studied? Well, uh, we're at a kind of a low point in the teaching profession right now in the United States. I mentioned earlier that salaries um, are much lower for teachers than competing careers. Um, in 30 states, a teacher who heads a family of four qualifies for government subsidies, like free or reduced-price lunch for their own child. Um, so that has also led to the fact that only about two-thirds of teachers are coming in with comprehensive training. Uh, the number who are getting induction has dropped from, you know, close to um, 70 to 80 percent to closer now to about 50 to 60 percent. So we're actually going backwards in the context and conditions for teaching in a number of states since the recession. Um, and the era of No Child Left Behind when I think people thought testing would improve achievement rather than teaching. We are getting a resurgence of interest in improving the quality of the teaching uh, profession and career. Uh, there are shortages in most states across the country because of these conditions. So if we think about what do we need to do policy-wise, um, I would say the first thing we need to do is to say, uh, if you will teach, we will pay for your education and ensure that that preparation occurs in uh, high-quality teacher education programs, uh, which have been accredited through a rigorous process uh, based on their ability to prepare teachers for the 21st century you know, curriculum and skills that kids need uh, with strong clinical training. Um, and if you get the right start, in the profession, it makes a big difference in your continuation and the way you can build on that knowledge and learn throughout the career. Uh, we need to be sure to reestablish all of the um, funded mentoring and induction programs that were once um, widespread in the United States and have begun to fray around the edges. Um, as Mark has suggested, you know, we need to think about how to rebuild the notion of a career ladder that can, in fact, provide the mentors for that induction program uh, with a restructuring of the work uh, framework that goes on in schools so that teachers do have the time to engage in the improvement of teaching uh, as well as to support the work of students. If we could start to pull some of those pieces together, and some states are further ahead on this than others, uh, we could begin to uh, assure that teaching is really a career that attracts what Singapore calls nation builders, um, the people who can do the work on which all other professions depend. Linda said we're kind of at a down point for teachers. I think this is 
<laughs> an understatement, that there are now acute shortages of teachers all over the United States. Um, young, young people, high school kids are, are deciding not to become teachers. Uh, the proportion who are actually applying to schools of education has been plummeting. And um, the response from state legislatures is to waive the already very low standards for becoming a teacher. In effect, they are basically saying, if we can't find teachers who, are, who don't have strong qualifications, we, will, we would prefer to have somebody, anybody, standing in front of our kids than to have an empty classroom. That's where we're, that is where we're now headed. Let me jump to one last question um, so that we have time to respect your time and still get uh, what I think is an interesting discussion about this. So as I've been thinking about this podcast, I've always wanted it to be a platform for people like the two of you who have done you know, very important research. And, and one of the problems that I see is that we have few tools for people like you to be able to get your message out. And um, what, what struck me when I read your policy briefs is that wow, this is information that school board members need to read, that uh, that school district administrators need to read, certainly our state legislature, our national, uh, our national representatives as well. And there are so few platforms. So as you've thought about uh, now that you've created these policy briefs, are there some strategies that you're trying to use to really um, allow these briefs to have impact um, that maybe other people that are in similar situations as you might be able to learn from? I think there's both the dissemination that the National uh, Center on Education and the Economy is doing with the book and the briefs and so on, but Mark and I are both very active in working across the country with state legislators through the National Council of State Legislatures, with state board members, uh, chief state school officers, uh, and governors on thinking about how to redevelop and strengthen the teaching profession in their states. Much of the action now is at the state level. It is, of course, uh, the state's constitutional responsibility to design the system of education. And uh, since the new federal law has pushed more of that responsibility back to the states, there is a lot of activity right now uh, in states trying to think about not only how to solve shortages, but how to build a strong profession. Uh, so I think this is an opportunity that we, we and others are trying to take advantage of to be sure that uh, strategies that can be successful in developing strong teaching and strong learning can be the response to our current situation rather than um, you know, kind of uh, just bringing warm bodies into classrooms. Linda and Mark, I just wanted to conclude by saying that, uh, you know, my read of your work, again, uh, I have nothing but complimentary um, uh, statements to make about it. And, and what struck me is that this, uh, these policy briefs and, and, the, and the study as a whole provide such important, uh, not only strategic, but also tactical information um, for all of us to consider in thinking about how to improve the profession. And it certainly gives me um, a great deal of uh, comfort knowing uh, that you're doing the work that you're doing with um, politicians and others who are influential in shaping policy. So uh, I want to thank you for being on the podcast, but more importantly, I want to thank you for the outstanding work that you did. 
Thank you so much. My guests today were Linda Darling-Hammond and Mark Tucker. Through their collaboration, they produced a highly insightful set of policy briefs for teacher preparation and improvement based upon a multi-country comparative study of high-performing education systems. These briefs were published by the National Center on Education and the Economy and created in collaboration with the Stanford Center on Opportunity Policy and Education. A link to those briefs can be found in the text accompanying this podcast, and we certainly recommend that listeners reach out and uh, read those uh, because they provide such valuable insight. Thank you for listening to Teaching Matters, produced by WOUB Public Media. You can always listen at woub.org backslash listen. We're also available through several popular podcasting apps, including Google Play, iTunes, and NPR One. You can contact staff of the podcast with ideas, questions, or comments through our Facebook page. Simply search for Teaching Matters Podcast in Facebook. Our audio engineer today was Adam Rich. I'm your host, Scott Titsworth. Have a great day.